Uh, good evening, all. We are reading 1 Corinthians 7 tonight. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 24. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devout yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another. Now to the unmarried and the widow I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should not marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us all to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you for not going too far. Uh, we are going to jump into this passage. Uh, I heard when Lewis started reading, there were a few people who went, oh, it's a spicy topic. And one of the great things at our church here is that we see that every part of God's word is God's word. And we don't shrink back from it. And so we're going to jump into this section. And uh, I'm going to pray for us as we do that. So you join me. Dear gracious God, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to dive into your word. Father, we pray for wisdom 
We pray for ears to hear and hearts to understand. Father, we pray for your spirit to be at work in us through your word. Father, I pray for each and every one of us now, Father, as we dive into this passage. Father, we ask that you would quieten our hearts and calm our minds and to hear what you have to say to us this evening. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, there are a number of TV shows and movies I get excited about going and seeing or coming out on Netflix. I sit down to watch them and then all of a sudden there's that moment. I don't know if you have that moment. That moment when I'm like, I'm hooked and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, for no apparent reason, there's a sex scene. And you're like, why are they on the battlefield doing this? What's the point? <laughs> How does this work? Right? It's just, not, it's just not the right place for that sort of stuff. Right? You just ruin a good movie. Now, I say that because... That idea of sex is something that we go, well, yeah, it ruins a movie, but sometimes we have that same sort of idea when it comes to church and talking about it in church. So we don't want to talk about it. We'd rather not. It's uncomfortable. You know what? Paul doesn't care. Because it's a problem. But it's also a good thing. And so it will come up tonight. It'll be spoken about. And so if you have a problem with it, sex, 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 sex. <laughs> Katie, Katie's just, yeah, she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, this letter to the church at Corinth was a letter that was twofold. One was that Paul had had reports from people that he knew that uh, there were things happening in the church of Corinth that were not good. And the other part of it is that the church of Corinth had actually written to Paul saying, we need some help on some certain matters. In fact, this is the first time where Paul actually stops and addresses those things that the church of Corinth has actually written to Paul asking for help over. And he does it over a number of times, and it usually starts with something like this. We'll throw this on the screen, and there's a few verses where he starts off, what we've got here is now for the matters of, but then we see a number of times where it's now about this, now about that, and so on. A number of issues that Paul will bring up that have been raised by the Church of Corinth and have been asked, he's been asked to address. And this tonight is the first one. And it's also the last in our series in 1 Corinthians. Till next year. And then we'll come back and have a look at them. And so let's have a look at this first question that Paul addresses. Chapter 1. Where he says, For now the matters you wrote about. And here, in verse 1, we're not sure whether he's actually doing a direct quote or he's paraphrasing what was said to him in the letter that was written to him. But he says, this is the report, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now this is not Paul saying this, this is what has been said to him, the teaching that is happening in the church of Corinth. That's why it's in quotations. 
They've written to Paul and said, is this a good thing? Is it good for us to teach that it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? Paul says, yes, that is a great thing. But there's a problem. There's a problem. The problem is that the people teaching this are saying that this is not just for those who are not married, who are single, but this should be the case for everybody in the church of Corinth, married or not. And so if, if they are married, they are to stop having sexual relationships with their partner. And this, Paul says, this is a problem. That's what he goes on and says, verse 2. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. This sexual immorality had started happening because there had been so much pressure on married couples to not have sexual intimacy with one another that they had actually gone looking for it outside of their marriage relationship. Isn't it funny, this thing that's supposed to be a good thing trying to uh, purify and make people holy is actually driving them out. See, Paul has a different view. He has a more realistic view on what it is to be a follower of Jesus in a marriage. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It is a very important thing that when we talk about marriage, that we talk about all of it. That marriage includes sexual intimacy. And he's going to talk about that. And the reason why this is such a big issue is we saw in chapter 1 when we first started the series that there were these divisions. Remember this? There was these divisions of some were following Paul, other Apollos, some Peter, some Jesus. There are all these different factions. Well, if you've noticed from last week to this week, there seems to be two other groups, at least, that are happening, or two other divisions. Last week, we heard Paul talk about how Paul Tate, not Paul Paul, talk to us a bit from chapter 6 about how there was a group who were seeing the body, the flesh, as evil and the spirit as good. And so that means that in the body you could do whatever you like to it. And so people were going and seeing prostitutes and doing all sorts of things. Sexual immorality was on the menu because the body didn't matter. It was only the spirit. And we heard that that is not true, that the body, the body has great value because it was bought at a price. And our body too, one day, will be resurrected as our Lord Jesus was. So there's great importance in the body. The body is not nothing. It is extremely valuable. And so there's that one group, and then there's this other group that are going the other way and saying, well, to be holy, we need to be celibate. We need to not do anything in our body that will jeopardise our holiness to jeopardise our purity. 
And Paul is answering this question, or this statement, this slogan, as he did in chapter 6, and correcting it. Saying that man should have sexual relations with their wife and woman with their husband. But what I need to make very clear, though, here, is that Paul is not laying down a different foundation for marriage to what God has put down. Because it would be easy to look at what Paul says and, and, and kind of come to the conclusion that marriage really is just a remedy against sexual immorality. There's really just preventative measures against sexual immorality. Just get married and then it's like playing cricket and putting on your, your pads and your helmet and everything. You're protected. It's not what Paul is saying what marriage is about. Marriage is from God. It was designed by God. It is beautiful and wonderful. But in the comfort of that marriage, there is that safety. There is that security. But it is not the sole purpose of marriage. And I love what Paul said the other week when uh, Paul talked about, um, about sex and about how we find that awkward to talk about. I've noticed even just tonight that few of us have sort of seen there. people are going to stop doing this as soon as I say this now, but as soon as we talk about sex, we go, right, we close off. We don't want to talk about it. Yeah. There's a couple of you just went, oh, Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, preparing this this week, I've, all preparation was like this going. <laughs> right? I love last week where Paul uh, encouraged us and reminded us that, that humanity just didn't discover sex while God's back was turned. We didn't invent it. That we need to, and we feel like we need to hide it from God. God, God made sex. And you know what? Everything God makes is good. And so it's not some dirty word or dirty thing that we can't talk about. It's actually something that we should talk about quite often. Well, not all the time, but a lot more than what we often do. Which is not something that we should be afraid of. The early church were not afraid of talking about it. They even wrote a letter to Paul and said, hey, can you tell us some more on it? And so Paul, as he lays out for the church and for us, how sex is to operate within a marriage, and within society, he also, you know, there that he also talks and recommends that marriage is to be monogamous. He says, husband to wife and wife to husband, not husband to wives or wives to, wife to husbands. It's one and one. This would have been quite shocking for the church of Corinth to hear. They lived in a, in a Greek culture where it was common to have multiple partners. 
We sit here and we heard Lewis read and we were kind of like, whoa, wow. Imagine being in Corinth having this read to you. And then reminding yourselves that actually we asked for this conversation. You're sitting here thinking, oh, I didn't ask for this. They did. And so when Paul here, in verse 3, says these words, he says the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife. And all the husbands go, yes. That's what would have happened in Corinth. All the husbands in Corinth would have said, yes, that is how it is meant to be. Because that's how it was in that day and age. Women were more of a possession than they were an equal party. And could you imagine then the reader continuing on and say, and likewise, wives to their husbands? You imagine hearing those two things for the first time. It is so countercultural to them. They would be so shocked to hear this. But in this moment, and, we, might, and we, we hear the word duties and we go, excuse me? I've played soccer for a number of years and you talk about ground control and ground duties and everybody runs for the hills, right? You hear the word duty and it instills something in us that just kind of goes, nah, not doing it. Paul here, maybe perhaps in our English translation, duties is not the best word to use. But the idea is that as husbands and wives, as they are married, there are responsibilities towards each other. There is a relationship that goes both ways. And Paul here is also very, very cautious and reminds us that a man is not to demand sex from his wife. A man is not to take sexual intimacy from his wife. I know and have spoken to many Christian men who think it is their right to have sex whenever it is that they choose in their marriage. Can I say, this is not what Paul is saying. And likewise, wives are not to hold their marital duty or sexual intimacy as a form of currency in their relationship. And what I mean by that is this. If you do this, then you know what? It's on. Well, you didn't do this. So no luck tonight. And you might sit here and think, well, that, that's, that doesn't happen. It does. 
We can use sex in marriage as currency in both ways. We can use it as a power trip in our relationships. Paul's saying that is not to be the case. That is not how it is to work. Sexual intimacy is part of the design of marriage. It is not to be used for our own purpose and for our own gain. In fact, Paul drives home this point in in verse 4 where he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Here Paul declares very simply and plainly that when it comes to sexual intimacy, both the husband and the wife are completely equal. Elsewhere, Paul will talk about how husbands are the head of the house and head of the wife. But in this moment of talking about sexual intimacy, he says they are equal. There is not to be domineering from any party because the body belongs to the other. That's what it means to be one flesh. What I want for myself is what I want for my wife. And what my wife wants for herself is what she wants for me. And and in every other way. There is an equality when it comes to this. And this would have been devastatingly shocking to the church at Corinth to hear these things. It may be a bit of a shock to us. Because that's not how church is portrayed in the media, is it? The fact that you have a married white male standing up the front of church saying these things and talking about sex in marriage plays into all the various things we hear around the place, isn't it? But here this married white man say this, When it comes to sexual intimacy in marriage, it is to be of equal joy and splendour for both partners. It is not for one and not for the other. But there are times, and Paul says that there are exceptions. Verse 5, where he says, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer, then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There will be times where sexy marriages need to take a break. And it's not one person demanding the other not. It's through mutual consent, through agreement and through conversation, through communicating. To do otherwise is to deprive and rob the other partner and to do harm instead or, and to abuse the authority that you have over the other person just as they have authority over you. 
But also here, Paul is not using this as an excuse for sexual immorality. Paul is not saying if you are deprived of sexual intimacy in your life, in your marriage, then it is okay for you to go and find that somewhere else. He is not saying that. I'll make that very clear. But the exception, by mutual consent, for a time that's not permanent, a time for prayer, a time of discussion and mutual agreement. This is a time when, just like everybody, you hit a time of crisis, a crisis. And in that season of crisis, there is time for special prayer. And that might be a time as, uh, as a family, as a married couple, where there is financial crisis or social or spiritual, or maybe there's physical or mental illness. Maybe you just had a baby, whatever it might be. There are a number of reasons to press the pause button for a period of time. Paul knows that. He's not oblivious to that. But he's saying agree and spend time praying. And for it to be temporary. As he says in verse 6, he says it is a concession, not a command. For it to be a time because Satan plays dirty. And he will use whatever he can to separate, destroy and tear apart anything that God has made and designed. And he doesn't care who is hurt along the way. So do not allow Satan a foothold by prolonging. I do, I do have to say at this point, and I'm sorry for these little pauses and sort of side notes, but unfortunately I know some of us have probably heard, or many of us probably heard, as I have, people preach on these passages and cause great harm. And my intent tonight, please, is not to do any harm, although I am not perfect and I'm sure that these words are hard to hear and may not be said well. And I apologise for that. And I, afterwards, I would love to chat with anybody who would like to talk through this stuff. But Paul here, and I too, am not saying at any point along the way, that if you have any issue or trouble in your marriage, if there is difficulty in your marriage, that you just need to have more sex and it'll fix it. I've heard someone preach on this passage and that was their conclusion. That is not what Paul is saying and that is not the answer. The answer to issues in marriage is to actually identify the issues, talk through the issues and sort those issues out. Otherwise, when there is sexual intimacy, it would not be equality. It would not be equal. One will be giving and the other will be solely taking. If there are issues, sort them out. Sex does not solve them. In fact, if anything, it exasperates them and makes them worse.
Paul moves on and talks again about celibacy and what he's going, uh, what the, the question that has been asked of him. And it might seem here in verse 7 where he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. It might, be see, it might look like and sound like Paul is actually advocating celibacy. Actually, don't get married. Don't worry about all these things. But the thing is that Paul quite often talks about marriage and how God instituted marriage. But he also knows that not every person will be married. Not every person will desire to be married. And some may have, may have been married, but are now either separated or divorced or widowed. In fact, some argue that Paul himself was probably married at some point. Remember who Paul once was? He was previously Saul before he was Paul. And he was a Pharisee. And to be a Pharisee and a rabbi, they needed to be married by law. And so some assume that maybe Paul was married, but because we hear nothing of his wife... Well, then there's a lot of speculation on what could have happened if that was the case. That maybe she left him when he became a Christian because she didn't convert. Maybe she passed away. A whole bunch of things. But the fact is that Paul knows quite a lot about marriage. But he also knows what it is to be single. And he holds both in equal weight. He's not seeing and despising either of them. He actually talks about this celibacy and singleness as a gift. A gift given to him and others by God. So that they can remain celibate as they are single. And as Paul will say later, so they won't burn with passion. But he also knows that not everybody is like Paul. And that sometimes being single might just be a season. Perhaps those who are single will get married and perhaps those who have been married will become single. Paul is not saying that everyone must get married just like he's not saying everyone must be single. But rather the whole point of this chapter is that whatever place you find yourself in, whatever stage you find yourself in, wherever it is, you are to serve and honour God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That is the first and foremost priority, wherever it might be. Friends, we could spend a lot of time tonight going through all these verses. In fact, we're supposed to cover all of chapter 7 tonight. So there's not going to be a second reading, so don't stress. But already you can see that how in each verse is almost a sermon in and of itself. How much an injustice I've done so far just in these verses. We could do a sermon series on these. My hope is just to, to draw out a few things and encourage us as we move forward. Because what we do find is that Paul doesn't just simply... <coughs> praise and elevate 
marriage, but he also elevates singleness and declares that it is a good thing and it's not to be despised. And that, they are, that people who are single in our churches are not to be seen as second-class citizens, but as valued members of our church, of our family, of our community, of God's people. That every person, married or single, young or old, male or female, all of us have a role to play in God's church. All of us have a role to play in God's community. All of us have gifts to encourage and to build up one another. And we are to use those for his glory and honour. Paul touches on two things I'm going to finish up with tonight as he goes on to answer this question. Because one of the, out, uh, the outworkings of this idea of the question that has been asked about whether it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman in a marriage relationship or any relationship, it actually had led some of the Christians in Corinth to actually separate or get divorced because it was better to be separated and divorced and celibate than it was to be married and to have sexual intimacy and to be unholy and pure in their minds. And there were some who had been converted but were married to unbelieving partners. And so Paul addresses those two things. And in the first, in verses 10 to 11, he actually quotes Jesus and says that divorce, or he says this, he says, um, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. I know how much of a difficult topic it is to talk about divorce and separation. I know some of us in this room have experienced it or experienced it whether as adults or as children. We know firsthand the great pain and anguish and sadness and difficulty that is brought on by divorce. Paul saying that it whatever we can do to avoid it, please do it. But I'm speaking for Paul here. It might be a bit presumptuous of me to do so. But there will be moments when divorce might well be the only option. If there is something happening in a marriage that means that the other is not being cared for and honoured and respected and loved as Christ loves us. Then there's some serious conversations that need to happen around what happens next. 
No one should feel trapped when those things are taking place in a marriage. Again, I'm happy to talk more about it afterwards. But likewise, Paul says that if a, there is a believer and a non-believer in marriage together, they are to stay together. And can I tell you, friends, I have heard wonderful stories of people who have been converted and their spouse hasn't been or they were a Christian before getting married and their spouse wasn't. Where throughout their marriage, they saw their marriage not just as a, as a relationship and a friendship that was growing and blossoming, but also a ministry to share the truth and love of Jesus with them. And to see wonderful stories of seeing that unbelieving spouse actually come to know and follow Jesus. Not always the case, but it does happen. And so Paul says that if you find yourself in that position to keep serving, keep sharing the good news and the love of Jesus, for who knows what could happen. And so the final thing in all this is Paul's words in verse 24, where he says, Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when they were called to them. Why? Well, who knows who will come across your path where you're at? If you become a Christian and you're the only Christian in your family, are you to leave your family? Say, you're dead to me? No. You are to remain there. And sometimes through great pain and suffering, do all you can to share the hope that you have in Christ with them hoping that they may, they too may have that same hope. If you are married to a, someone who follows Jesus or doesn't follow Jesus, you are not to go and become a Christian and then go and get a divorce and go in your separate ways. No, you are to stay and you are to honour and glorify God in that relationship. If you are single, you don't become a Christian and then go and get married straight away because that's the only way you can honour God. No. Paul demonstrates to us in this passage and throughout his ministry the great blessing that he is to God's people in his singleness. And so to use that, that situation, that stage as a way to honour and glorify God Paul makes it clear that as Christians, people who trust in Jesus, who follow Jesus with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength, we are to honour and glorify him in marriage, in singleness, in life, wherever it may be. To put him first, 
and to seek his kingdom so that others may come and know the Saviour as we do. And to see the things that God has created as good and perfect. To see the gifts that God gives us as good and perfect. And to use those gifts in service to our God. I want to pray and we're going to sing. Dear gracious God, we thank you for uh, your word and we thank you for this word to us. Father, we pray that in all these things that we may honour you and glorify you. Father, pray that we would be a people who share our lives with one another, that we would share our struggles and our joys. Father, that we would take responsibility for each other, to care for, to encourage and to equip so that we may, as your people, press on as we see the day approaching so that we may always honour you in all we say and do. Amen.